We're looking at forgiveness this morning and we sing about it and we talk about it and we teach about it. I'm convicted as a Christian that we don't do it very often. And yet, it's the thing that brings God glory like nothing else. In fact, if you want to know how important forgiveness is to God, look no further than the cross. Out of all the wonderful things God has done and has accomplished, only one cost Him His life. And that ought to tell us something about forgiveness and how important it is to our God. So open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 17, verses 1 to 10. And just forewarning, there's so much vocabulary in here that can be translated in different ways that none of your translations are going to align. So... I'll help us sort through the confusion. I'll be reading from the New American. Luke chapter 17. He said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Which of you, having a slave, plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward, you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, We are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. This is the word of our Lord. In order to understand our Lord's teaching this morning, I'm going to ask that we lay aside our cultural expectations, especially regarding forgiveness. We've been raised and seeped and marinated in a Christian bubble, most of us. A Christian bubble inside a Christianized culture. Everyone in our culture, more or less, has some understanding of forgiveness. We know that it's virtuous, even if we don't all practice it. It's kind of the expectation. But Jesus is speaking this morning, in this passage, into a culture that was not forgiveness-oriented. He was speaking into an honor-shame society. An honor-shame society. Remember when he taught the parable of the prodigal son, the one that we all love? Because of the forgiveness and the mercy and the love shown, this culture would have saw that parable as something ugly. I can't believe this father allowed himself to be publicly dishonored by his son and then to bring shame upon himself by welcoming his shameful son back into the family. And you and I as Christians go, that's beautiful. That's the gospel. But this was not the cultural expectation of the time. So we might be tempted to say, okay, well, then maybe this passage doesn't have that much relevance to our culture. And I would suggest this morning that we're more an honor-shame culture than we like to admit. It just looks 
a little different in the Americanized version of it. Wherever pride exists, there's honor-shame going on. Wherever pride exists, there's honor-shame going on. And let me tell you about the, what the problem with an honor-shame culture is. If you could advance the slide for me, please. I think I need new batteries, maybe. My premise this morning is that God's economy of relationships is different than man's. And when I say economy, I'm not talking about financial words. Theologians often use the word economy to kind of talk about the structure or kind of the way things work. God has a completely different economy of relationships than man does. In an honor-shame economy of relationships, the goal is for one human being to feel better or more important, or more worthy than another human being, to to take the place of honor. And in order for me to be honored in an honor-shame economy, someone else has to have less honor. Has to have less honor. And we go around playing this game of who has more honor than others. Honor becomes like tokens, And who can accumulate more tokens? Who can accumulate more honor? And the goal of accumulating these tokens is to make me a better person than you so that I'm in control of the relationship. I'm in control of the relationship. I dictate the terms of the relationship. You're beneath me. You owe me. The person with the honor can distribute honor to others. The person in the position of shame can't bring honor to themselves. It must be bestowed on them. And we start to see honor as a zero-sum game, meaning there's only so many honor tokens, and when we run out, that's it. And so you accumulate honor for yourselves, and you dish out shame to others. But in God's economy of relationships, God is already the best. He's already the most honorable. We acknowledge God's honor, but we can't give him honor in the sense that he's lacking it. And until we give it to him, his account is empty. When we glorify God, we're acknowledging what is already true about Him. Since God is already the best, then there's no competition between us and God. And if we root and ground our identity in Christ, meaning I had no honor, I only had dishonor because I'm a sinner, but God in Christ... In Christ forgave me my debt and adopts me into his family. And so now I have infinite worth and value and honor. This builds relationships. This restores relationships. This fosters relationships. I'm no longer in competition with my fellow humans. I'm no longer walking around suspicious that people might be judging me. And I don't have to walk around judging others. I don't walk around in fear, afraid that somebody might reject me. Well, if they do, it ain't my fault because I have a lot of tokens in my honor account. This is a whole new way of doing relationships. But it's going to cost us something. It's going to cost us something. When you ask for forgiveness, that costs you something. In fact, the language God uses for forgiveness is financial language. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us. 
Words like reconciliation, those are accounting terms. When we confess our sins to someone that I've sinned against you, I'm acknowledging I'm indebted to you. But it also costs the forgiver. Because for a moment there, you're owed a debt and you have the upper hand. And you see people who hang on to unforgiveness. That's right, you did sin against me. And I'll let you back into the relationship on my terms. Well, when will I be completely forgiven? When will we be back on equal footing? I'll let you know. And it never ends up happening because the person wants to hang on to the upper hand. It feels safe or it feels powerful. But make no mistake about it, it's ugly to God and it's really destroying and rotting the relationship from the inside out. So confession is costly and forgiveness is costly. Both parties must humble themselves. We're not talking about a culture where humility was valued. Jesus speaking into a culture where humility is not valued. Honor is valued. And shame isn't the same as humility. In fact, in modern day honor-shame societies, I understand from people who traveled overseas and been missionaries overseas, that in honor-shame societies, people will take the position of lowliness because that's the more honorable position. Not because they really think they're lowly, but that is the way you play the game culturally. But then when you're not in public and you're in private, your true colors come out. So in some cultures, for instance, the ladies highly esteem their husbands publicly, but in private when the ladies get together, it's a contest to see who can complain about their husband the most. And it's the way the game is played. And every culture has their own rules to the game. But the rules are all rooted and grounded in pride. So Jesus is speaking into our culture of pride. Wherever you go on the planet, this teaching is relevant. Everywhere you go, there is broken relationships that need to be restored. And they're only restored through forgiveness. And if we'll trust God, even though it is very costly, we'll find out that what we get in return is so valuable. You get relationship back. What could be more valuable? What could be more valuable? You get relationship back. It's so important to God that He would give His own life to restore relationship And be able to forgive us. So with that as the backdrop. Let's go into the text. Point number one. First we must come to grips with sin. First we must come to grips with sin. Sin is ubiquitous. Meaning it's everywhere. You can't escape it. Even in our Christian bubble. Even if you lived as a hermit. Sin resides from within. It's in the heart. And so Jesus says it is inevitable that stumbling blocks will come. This word stumbling blocks is translated so many different ways in your Bibles. The ESV says temptations to sin. The King James says um, offenses. I believe. A scandalos, where we get the word scandal from, was literally the word for the bait stick in a death trap. So you've sprung a trap to kill an animal. The scandalos was the, the, the bait trigger. And what a wonderful word picture we get 
for temptation to sin. Because the wages of sin is death. It's a death trap. A temptation to sin is a death trap. It kills when we sin. Kills what? What dies? When God told Adam and Eve, you shall surely die if you eat from the tree of the good of uh, eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, he really meant they would die. And the death was in three forms. Death is always separation. So physically, death is your soul separated from your body. But it's also, relationship-wise, death separates us. They were separated from perfect fellowship with God. And then ultimately, the final form of death, eternal death that the Bible speaks of, is eternal separation from God. Eternal separation from God. Death kills. Death separates. Sin separates. Sin kills. And yet, Jesus says it's inevitable that these death traps are going to be set all around us. And in fact, you and I, because we're sinners, we unfortunately set death traps for one another. So this is serious to God. Whenever you hear Jesus pronounce a woe, a woe, a woe is a curse, a, a curse from God on someone. When Isaiah saw the glory of God in Isaiah chapter 6, he said, woe is me. I am undone for our I am a man of unclean lips, surrounded by a people of unclean lips. So Jesus says, woe to him through whom they come. Why? Because you're tempting someone to be separated from God. The worst possible thing that could ever happen to anyone. To be separated from God. This is how serious sin is. So serious, God would give his own life to remedy the situation. Out of all the amazing things God has accomplished, nothing else cost him his life. So sin is serious and reconciliation is serious to God. Precious to God. Of ultimate importance to God. We come on Sunday mornings and we sing praises to God and we sing about His forgiveness. Power of the cross. And we put money in the plate. And we serve at Sunday school. And we do all kinds of wonderful Christian things. And the one thing that glorifies God more than anything else is practicing forgiveness. And I have found it to be very rare in my own life, in my counseling, confessing sin and asking for forgiveness and extending forgiveness. We're doing pretty good at a lot of the other Christian things. We have this beautiful building. We support our missionaries. We have lots of Bible studies, good worship, good preaching. And I think we're failing at forgiveness. And hence, all the divorce, all the church splits, broken friendships, broken relationships. If there's anything we should be marked for as Christians, is those weird people and all their forgiving. That's not normal. That's not natural. All the asking for forgiveness. That kind of humility. This sin is so serious that Jesus says it would be better for the person who's tempting other people to sin to just die now. And not just any death. Just put something heavy around their neck, throw them in the sea and get them far away from anyone. 
Look, we're not saying that this is the punishment. You've got to read closely. Jesus isn't saying this is what's going to happen to people. He's saying it would be better for him. So whatever we're facing at the judgment seat for being someone who constantly tempts other people to turn from God, it would be better if you just got drowned now. That's serious. That's serious. And Jesus uses this word little one, so he's not talking about children. He's talking about either new believers or those who God is drawing to himself and their faith is very vulnerable. They're either on just on this side of salvation or just on the other side of salvation. But they're vulnerable, they're weak, they're little ones, they're children. They fall for things very easily. And searching through all the commentaries, the commentators agree it's probably talking about uh, two things specifically. One, false teaching. Because Jesus, for the last few chapters, has been confronting false teaching. What more would, would pull little ones away from God and tempt them to fall into a death trap? False teaching. And then the second thing, hypocritical living. So religious leaders, religious people, people who say they know God, living in such a way that leaves these little ones going, well, if that's what it means to follow God, I don't, I don't want that. I don't want any part of that. Theologian pastor R. Kent Hughes writes in his commentary, when he gathers together with other pastors to pray, sometimes they will pray, Lord, if one of us is about to fall into adultery, just put a millstone around our neck and throw us into the sea now. Just, just take us out. Because the devastation as spiritual leaders, the fallout would be horrendous. So just, if you know that's where I'm headed, wow, what a prayer. There's somebody who understands the seriousness of sin, what's on the line. So Jesus teaching his disciples just how serious their job is as leaders, as disciples, as disciplers. But now he's going to transition to, well, what do you do if somebody is in sin? What do you do if someone is in sin? So let's try not to tempt people to sin, but what do you do if people are in sin? Since sin separates us from God, there could be nothing more important than restoring people back to God. There could be nothing more important than restoring people back to God. This is of ultimate importance to God. And so he says, be on your guard. Be alert. Don't be lulled into the non-important trappings of life as if the world consists of getting up and making money and buying things and accumulating stuff and going around trying to make yourself more honorable than other people. This is, this is what life is about here, is this relationship with God. God is life. Being disconnected from the source of life is death. This is what we spend our time, our money, our prayers invested in, reconciling people back to God. Of course, that starts with yourself first every morning and throughout the day, confessing your sin to God. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God who is faithful and just will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Amen? And to help others be reconciled to God is what we're all about as Christians. Through evangelism and discipleship. Evangelism and discipleship. Evangelism and discipleship. 
Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. I put the King James or the New King James here side by side to show you that a prepositional phrase crept in to the King James. It says, against you. The older and better manuscripts don't have this prepositional phrase. In fact, the prepositional phrase changes the whole meaning of the text. First, in verse 3, Jesus is saying, first and foremost, people are sinning against God. You need to help them be reconciled to God. He'll get to the personal sin that has disrupted your personal relationships in the next verse. But first, we're to help people be reconciled back to God. You say, well, how did the against you get in there? Well, sometimes as a scribe is copying the Scripture, and he's a human being, and it's getting late, your mind just fills in what you think should be there. And since the next verse says, and if he sins against you seven times, maybe he just put the against you because he knew what was coming next. In order to be more efficient as a scribe, sometimes they would just take a small chunk of Scripture and do make 50 of these, make 100 of these, right? No copier, no mimeograph. All had to be done by hand. And so that creeps in there. That version with that addition gets sent somewhere else, and now that scribe uses that to make his copies. And so one school of thought, when you have two ancient manuscripts that are different, one says take the older one or take the one that is harder, the harder teaching, because it's human nature to make things easier. Oh, it makes sense to put against you. The other school of thought is just count up the most number of texts. And they call that the majority text. And the King James and New King James are based off a of majority text. And there's, there's good and godly theologians who take either camp. I'm more of uh, the older text and the one that's the harder teaching. I'm not a majority text kind of person. Like, more is better. Especially... If the situation I just described happened where a scribe makes a mistake early on and then makes a thousand copies, now you're going to have a bunch of copies that survive antiquity. And so you just got a little teaching on what's called lower criticism. It's your, your uh, seminary education for the morning. How, how do we decide what the actual text is? I believe the actual text, the original manuscript, did not include against you. Now, this might blow you away this morning, but the Old Testament really doesn't talk about people sinning against one another. In fact, I charge you or challenge you to find a couple examples in your Old Testament of somebody forgiving somebody else. You're like, well, of course there's got to be in there. I mean, the Bible's all about forgiveness. It's like, well, he wouldn't charge us if he didn't do it himself all week. But some of you, I love, you're going to be like, I'll find one. You'll probably hit me before I leave the church. The closest thing we have is Joseph forgiving his brothers. But when his brothers ask forgiveness, Joseph says, Who am I to take the place of God? I can't forgive sins. I mean, I can be forgiving, but I can't declare your sins forgiven. In fact, remember, when Jesus forgives the paralytic publicly and forgives the prostitute, at the dinner, what do people say? Who is this man who even forgives sins? It, it was not the done thing. Only God can forgive sins, which Jesus is God. The same guy who can do these miracles because he's God can forgive sins. 
But Jesus gives authority to his disciples to declare sins forgiven if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of sins. We can declare your sins are forgiven. Not I forgave your sins on behalf of God, but God has already forgiven your sins in Christ so I can declare, and no other religion on the face of the earth can declare this, your sins are forgiven. Oh, take the weight off. Take the shame off. Take the guilt off. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus said to his disciples, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He was talking about forgiving sins. And the tense in the Greek is really translated, because we don't have an English tense that corresponds really well, Listen to how awkward this sounds, but this is the way it should read. Whatever you bind on earth shall already have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall already have been loosed in heaven. Therefore, I give you the authority to declare what has already happened in heaven. You put your faith in Jesus Christ this morning. I declare to you from the scriptures that your sins are forgiven as far as the east is from the west. Amen. Praise God. Wouldn't you like to leave here with that satisfaction? That guilt and debt erased from your account. You can put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. So, This is why this is so hard for the apostles to accept. What? Forgive sins? We've been told our whole lives that only God can do that. In fact, David in the Psalms, after sinning against Bathsheba, after sinning against Uriah, after sinning against really the whole nation Israel, writes, against you and you alone have I sinned. And that is correct in the sense that primarily all sin is against God. But because we are selfish, we focus on the sins that are committed against me. Which is backwards, right? Well, I know people are going to sin against God, but against me? Are you kidding me right now? We should care infinitely more about people's relationship with God being destroyed through sin than our personal relationships being inconvenienced. And I know some of you have been sinned against in horrendous ways, so I don't mean to downplay it, but compared to sinning against a holy God, it's small potatoes. And really, that's the vision that's going to help you find healing. It's also going to keep you humble. Very humble. I have this enormous, unpayable sin debt against the God of the universe, and he forgave me in Christ freely. Therefore, I can turn around and forgive my brother or sister. So, this is a command, not a suggestion, not a Well, some people teach in the church and some have the gift of helps and some have the gift of administration and some people have the gift of forgiveness. It's not a spiritual gift. It's a command to confess our sins and call somebody out, which he uses the word rebuke, and we'll talk about that in a minute. We're commanded to do this. God never commands us to do things that we do naturally. He wouldn't have to command us. We would just do them. So the fact that he commands us to forgive sins tells us we're not good at this. It doesn't naturally happen. We like to hang on to the debt people owe us. I don't want to forgive them. I'm mad right now. I want them to suffer. 
I want them to know their place. I'm not going to let them off the hook. What if, if I forgive them? What if they go right out and do it again? Jesus covers that. We are to be people who are ready at all times to ask for forgiveness and extend forgiveness. And that's only going to happen if we keep our eyes fixed on the cross and be reminded of God's forgiveness of us. Because our relationship with God is the only one we have where the forgiveness goes one direction. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, I finally forgave God of, oh, knock it off right there. You did not forgive God of anything. He forgave you. He forgave you so that you could freely extend and receive forgiveness in your horizontal relationships. If you remove God from the equation, then even somebody who practices forgiveness, it'll be completely out of pride. Look how forgiving I am. How could you take pride in that when God forgave you of a mountain of debt and you forgave someone of an anthill of debt? So we're commanded to help people be restored back to God. And Jesus used the term rebuke, which has such an ugly sound to it in the English. Rebuke. Rebuke. I dare you to say rebuke in a way that sounds lovely. Hey, I'm here to rebuke you. It's just, I don't know, it rhymes with puke. I don't know what the deal is. We're not supposed to be going around looking for people to rebuke in the sense that I can't wait to tell people they're wrong. I'm not the morality police. This church is just filled with sinners. It's my personal mission in life to clean this place up. No, it's all of our mission to help the body be sanctified and glorify God. We must be careful that we do not blind ourselves into thinking that we get to do all the rebuking. But we never need to be rebuked ourselves. I have found this with people. Most people are not comfortable confronting others, but the ones that are typically aren't so comfortable being confronted. Wait, you're confronting me? I do the confronting. And so we end up just not confronting anyone, for the most part. We just turn a blind eye, unless it's Facebook, and then we get really bold. And you know how effective Facebook is at helping people to repent? Yeah, John Kelly, zero. You just spent three hours typing something that really probably made matters worse. And I... Also recommend not to rebuke through email if you can help it. Or text. I don't care how cool your emojis are. You can't see body language. You can't see tone. You can't see humility. You can't see the tears and the love. So you can spend three hours typing the email and then just put it in your drafts file and then click and drag it to your trash can file. Just don't send it. You'll, you'll be sorry. It's got to be a face-to-face if, if, you, if you can. Those other means of communication are last resorts. Face-to-face, always better. Like Jesus says to go to your brother. Go to him. We should care more about God's glory and our brother's relationship with God, not about being right or winning an argument. So a caution about the word rebuke. The Greek word, there's a few Greek words for rebuke. In this case, Jesus uses the word epitamao, which is a, the root tamao means to honor or value something. So the word honor or value is in the word rebuke. So make sure you're honoring and valuing someone. You put epi on the front, the prefix epi, and you're 
either highly honoring someone or resetting the correct value. So when somebody's in sin, they're not valuing things the way God values them. You're coming in to help them reset. It's, it's corrective, not punitive. Wow, there's that hard U sound again. Punitive, rebuke. It's corrective. It's helpful. It's loving. Jesus uses this word in lots of other ways besides harshly correcting people. He reset the winds when he was out in the boat at sea. It says he rebuked the winds. He, he reset them. He corrected the winds. He corrected a fever. He uses the word epitamao. When, when he says... Who do people say that I am? Well, some say you're John the Baptist and others say, no, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And they start talking about this news. The Bible says, and Jesus rebuked them to tell no one. So it wasn't a harsh rebuke. It was, you guys are right, but don't tell anyone right now. It's not the right time. I'm correcting I know you want to go tell everyone right now, not yet. So rebukes don't need to be harsh and should always be done with humility and not from a position of superiority or final judgment. If you're coming to restore someone back to God, you're just two filthy sinners on the same plane. And right now it's my turn to help you and tomorrow it'll probably be your turn to help me. And that makes for an environment where they feel safe to admit that they've sinned. Hey, I'm just helping you with the same things I need help with. The right way to approach a brother who you think is in sin, now, underline you think. (laughs) I think this is exactly One of the reasons why Jesus says, go to your brother first. To talk it out. There might be a misunderstanding. You might have perceived the situation incorrectly. There may not be any sin at all. It may be a wisdom issue. You can't turn wisdom issues into sin issues. Well, that's not the way I would have done it. Well, that's the way they did it. And a lot of times it's just maybe there would have been a better way to handle a situation. That's not sin. My favorite stories, if you've been at our church long enough, you you know former elder uh, um, Floyd Jones and former facilities guy, Hank Hubner. We used to call them Hank and Floyd or Flank because they were inseparable. And... We had a young lady once come to the church. She was a battered wife. We confirmed she was battered. She was going to move out of state to a women's shelter. She needed cash to get there. But she didn't want to come to the church because her abusive husband was looking for her. And so Hank and Floyd decided, we'll meet you behind Sonic on your way out of town. (laughs) And somebody from the church saw Hank and Floyd giving an anonymous woman a bunch of cash behind Sonic. (laughs) and right what is going on oh my goodness scandal 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 and they came and they're like we don't know what to do and I'm like it's Hank and Floyd and they're like I know that's what makes us so scandalous and I'm like no it's Hank and Floyd if you think it's weird and out of their character you probably don't have all the facts Don't jump to conclusions about your brothers and sisters in Christ. Believe the best about them. Believe the best about them. Boy, they had egg on their face when they found out the full story. Oh, they were being loving and sacrificial? Yes. That sounds more like the Hank and Floyd we know. So, before you go to your brother, dwell on the cross, confess your own sin, be reminded how much you need grace, 
Ask yourself, do I care more about this person being restored to God or me being right? Assume the best about your brother or sister. Maybe maybe he hasn't actually sinned and you just don't have all the facts. And don't go around looking for all the facts before you go because that's gossip. Go to your brother directly, right away. The longer you delay, the longer you leave your mind fertile for misunderstanding becomes the devil's garden. Number three, make sure restoration is the goal and everything is done with love and humility. Why should we forgive? Why does God command us to forgive? You could come up with your own list. Here's five things I want you to focus on this morning. God is forgiving. It's the thing he's most glorified for. So how could we not forgive when we have been forgiven of much? Forgiveness restores relationships, and God cares immensely about restoring relationships. Like, you get all caught up in all the details, but you got to start with this. God cares about restoring relationships. That's the goal. If the relationship's not restored, then anything else that comes from the situation has fallen short of the mark. Forgiveness glorifies God. We say we want to glorify God. This is how he's glorified. Number four, people who don't forgive hang on to a sense of superiority. You don't, you don't want to do that. That destroys relationships. And number five, people who don't forgive like to be the victim or the offended party. They, they, they foster and nurture this sense of, in, of victimhood. I'm oppressed. Say, so, well, just forgive them, and then you're not the oppressed person anymore. I can't help it. I need to be the oppressed person I need to feel like a victim. I need to feel like I have the upper hand and that you owe me something. If I forgive them, then that that wipes the slate clean. Amen! That would be wonderful. Wipe the slate clean. Instead, they become bitter, sanctimonious, and filled with self-pity. Which makes them a kind of person that fewer and fewer people want to hang around. And it breaks more relationships. Now Jesus transitions to restoring your own human relationships. Now he says, and if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Notice the stress on the pronoun you. God knows we will be sinned against and that we will sin against others. So we must be ready at all times to seek forgiveness and to extend forgiveness. Same rules for approaching a brother who has sinned against God apply to approaching a brother who sinned against you. Be humble. Get the log out of your own eye so you can see the speck in your brother's eye clearly. Believe the best about him. Maybe he hasn't really sinned against you. I was reminded of a time that a couple ladies from our church years ago, one came to me and said, I'm very upset. My best friend purposely didn't invite me to a party. I said, well, why would she do that? I don't know, but I'm so hurt. I'm like, I don't even know how to look into this. This is one of those powder kegs that (laughs) somehow everyone's going to get angry at me at the end of this one. I don't know how it works, but somehow I'm going to be the bad guy here. And so I went to the other woman, and it turns out she had given the invitation to one of her kids to give to her friend, and it got lost in translation. And she was at home crying and angry that her best friend wouldn't come to her party. And if somebody just would have come to somebody... But they had decided in their minds all kinds of horrible things about their best friend. How could she? And, oh, she's got a new set of friends, and look at them. They're all... <laughs> and I'm like... Of course, the poor little scapegoat was the kid. <laughs> no, 
nobody confessed their sin and asked forgiveness. Some poor kid got a whooping that night. So Peter says, or the, the, the apostles in this case say, Lord, increase our faith. Because they're like, I, we can't do this. You know what? They're absolutely right. They can't on their own. But all you need is the right kind of faith, not more faith. The right kind of faith is faith in Jesus Christ. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, you can forgive like this. Because he forgave you so freely by giving his own life, we can seek forgiveness and extend forgiveness. And if we'll practice it, that little mustard seed faith will grow. And I would love to see it grow in this body, wouldn't you? That seeking forgiveness, asking forgiveness, and extending forgiveness would become so natural that we wouldn't need to pull teeth and twist arms to make it happen. And so Jesus drives the point home with this parable. It's a very kind of shocking parable, but I love it. It's so to the point. Look, if the master commands the slave to do it, you do it. You don't ask questions, and you don't pat yourself on the back after you do it. Therefore, forgive. So then, what is this kingdom motive then that undergirds forgiveness we got to replace the honor shame motives therefore we are ambassadors for christ as though god were making an appeal through us we beg you on behalf of christ be reconciled to god when you when you help others people to ask god to forgive them you are speaking on behalf of god as an ambassador for christ what a tremendous honor and privilege to restore a relationship back to God. And then when it comes to one another, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. You're looking at the cross and saying, if Jesus could forgive me of this unpayable sin debt, I could turn around and forgive my brother or, or seek their forgiveness. Because you know what? What is most important to God? Not your honor or your shame, but what? The relationship. The relationship. They will know you are my disciples by the way you love one another. And love in a sin-cursed world is going to involve forgiveness. Father, Thank you for forgiving us in Christ. Teach us to love by humbly seeking forgiveness and extending forgiveness. May we trust in you that there's great blessing on the other side of this transaction. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Be be forgiving people.